thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Thank you, Kathleen, again, and to the people who serve along with you in this ministry. Okay, we got to get the offering. Yeah, we don't want to forget that. Go right ahead, bro. We'll always wait for that. Reminds me of the story I may have told you before, but it's worth hearing again while they're doing this. It has to do with offering. There was a seminary student in the seminary that I attended in Fort Worth and seminary students are always wanting an opportunity to preach somewhere, it seems, but the opportunities were not very big in the Metroplex because there were so many seminary students there. There were only enough places to go for a handful of those people, so when one was given the opportunity by a professor to go and serve in some remote area, maybe 100 miles away from Fort Worth, those young men chose eagerly to do it. There was one young man, and he was living on a shoestring of a budget, and he took his five-year-old son with him out to the country to give a sermon. He got there, and nobody was at the church house when he got there, but the door was open, so his son and he walked in, and there was an offering box right to his left when he walked in. And it said offering on it. And he said, well, I'm here. I'm going to give an offering. He took his wallet out of his pocket. He had $5. That's all he had. So he breathed real deeply and said, Lord, you help get us back home with enough gas. He put it in. The people began to arrive. There were only about a dozen people in that small country church. He preached his heart out. And when he finished, he was congratulated by the only deacon in the church who was presiding and the people filed by and they said nice things to him about what he had to say and then the deacon took up the rear he did likewise and then he said to him it's the custom in our church to take what's ever in the offering box that particular Sunday give as a thank you to the guest preacher when we have a guest preacher and so he had an envelope it was sealed. He gave it to the young man. The young man said, thank you, sir. Walked out with his five-year-old son. They got in the car. They began their trek back to Fort Worth where they lived. And about two miles outside the radius of that church, the young preacher couldn't wait. He said, son, open that envelope and let's see what's in it. And when he opened it up, the little boy pulled everything that was in it out of it. It was a $5 bill. <laughs> and so the son said to his dad, as for his son, was saying, those cheapskates, he said all kinds of things about it. And then after he settled down, his son said, Daddy, if you'd put more in it, you'd got more out of it. <laughs> so that's true, isn't it, when we... We cannot outgive God, and God is so good to us. So, from the ridiculous to the sublime here, let's look where we read from 1 Timothy chapter 1 earlier, verses 3 through 11. And as I was preparing the message, 
I thought about many beginnings in my academic pursuits after I got out of high school. I don't remember being handed a syllabus in high school, although there may have been an occasion or two, but it was something that was routine, probably required of faculty members in the university I attend, attended, and then also at the seminary that I attended afterwards, having graduated with a bachelor's degree, going on to prepare to become a pastor. And those days, those first days of class, I don't know if you have any recollection, I dreamed about them years after I got out because these syllabi were full of the expectations of the professor or teacher for those classes. And I just swallowed very hard. I thought, am I going to make it? I've got five of these classes. How am I going to make it? Well, I did make it by God's grace, but included in each one of the syllabi was the curriculum. What was going to be the subject matter? When we come to consider God's curriculum today, this is really in large part what this passage of Scripture teaches about. We're told what it's not and what it is. In the fourth verse, we heard the word speculation. The curriculum of God is not speculative. It has no hint of speculation in it. It has, however, if you'll look at the 11th verse, the last verse, we're going to work our way in that direction. It says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Look at the way in which Paul describes God's curriculum. It's Revelation, and I'm not talking about the book that bears the name Revelation, the last book of our Bible, the last book of the New Testament. I'm talking about God has revealed Himself to us, and He has given us something that's solid and concrete, and by the way, it is eternal. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God. Think about what Jesus says about Himself. Among other things, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever believes in me will not perish or comes to me, but will have eternal life. I'm the way to God. That's what Christ says about himself. I am the truth. Earlier, he has said this to the Father. Sanctify them, talking about us who know him. Sanctify simply means set them apart and equip them to be useful to me in my enterprise of bringing salvation to the world. He says, sanctify them, Father, by your truth. The, your word is truth. Jesus is the truth, and the Bible is the truth. And by the way, in the book of John, the Bible says this about Jesus in a conversation which he was having with some men who were taking him to task about what he was preaching. And he said, you search the scriptures because you believe that in them you have eternal life. And it is they which bear witness to me. The word of God. In the introduction to the gospel of John, we are told that wonderful news in the 14th verse. And the word speaking of Jesus became 
human flesh, became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The gospel is based on solid ground, the most solid ground that anyone could ever imagine because it's a reflection of God's truth in written form, but God's truth in human form. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ in order that He could fix what's wrong with all of us in the area of being separated from God by our own sinfulness. So with that having been said, let's just dive into this passage of Scripture. Remember, not speculation, but revelation. That which we can count on because it's coming from God about the God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, these are the words of Paul, of course, addressed to Timothy. We notice in the verse before, look at it again to get your bearing. Some of you were not here last week. It says, this letter is addressed to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So he's writing this to Timothy. I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia. Let me stop here just a moment. The word translated urge is a word which suggests that there was some reluctance on Timothy's part to embrace the assignment which God had given him to oversee the church there in Ephesus. And we know from reading the entire letter and then going into the second letter to Timothy, there are indications that Timothy was not a bold in person kind of guy. He was not the kind of person who was chomping at the bit to take the reins and lead the fledgling church in Ephesus. He felt inadequate. Now let me pause here just a moment. I have always, and will I imagine until I finish being a pastor, a preacher, whatever, and God takes me home or whatever, that I imagine, just like I have, there's a certain degree of inadequacy I sense in my life to do what I'm doing today. And you might say, we're glad you finally realized that, Master. <laughs> but I get concerned. Do I, do I understand enough? Have I studied enough? Lord, would you stoop one more time and help me to understand so I could help people to understand what your message is. And I take comfort in the fact that the Apostle Paul, he's the one who's writing this letter, I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia. Paul, when he came to the city of Corinth, Corinth was a bustling metropolis. It was a seaport city. It was a city much like many seaport cities in that day, even this day, where there was a lot of mischief and sin that would be found there. And it was a place where there were a lot of intellects as well. And the Bible says, this is what Paul wrote about his coming. He said, remember how I came to you. I did not come 
with wise and persuasive language. To the contrary, when I came, I came in fear and trembling. The great apostle Paul, fearful and trembling, well, that was what he knew Timothy was facing. And in the second letter, this is what he writes to him. He says, fan into flame the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control or a sound mind. So we know Timothy was on edge and Paul was encouraging him to embrace the assignment that God had given to him. Where is Paul now? He's in Macedonia, probably. Macedonia, you may know, is north of what we now know as Greece. Philip of Macedon was the king of that area. And by the way, he had a son. We know him as Alexander the Great. It was a powerful area. And what was Paul doing? He was going to preach the gospel there. He says, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Undoubtedly, Timothy would have wanted to go with his father in the faith. He had worked and learned in the shadow of this great man. And now he was given a huge assignment. And his assignment is rather clear. And that is to instruct certain men, he does not name any of these men, not to teach strange doctrines. And strange doctrines were abroad. You know what a doctrine is? Doctrine, simply put, is teaching. And there were men in the church there who had stepped up and they were beginning to teach things that were contrary to the Word of God. Look at verse 4. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration. That would be the plan of God which is by faith. The way in which these false teachers showed up in their teaching and showed themselves not to be teachers sent from God but really freelancers. They were doing what they wanted to do. They had been drawn to this role in large part because they were people, as we're going to see in a little bit, who liked the limelight. They were eager to be upfront in what they had to do. And they worked with myths. This is a word for fables. And if we go to 2 Timothy, we will maybe someday, we'll discover that there's a reference in 2 Timothy and in Titus. And in Titus, he was another son of this man, Paul, in his being a father to many spiritually. And he talked about the myths of the Jews. Probably that's what he had in mind here when he's talking to Timothy and the Jewish people in the, what we call the intertestamental period. You know, the last book of the Old Testament, what is it? Malachi. And then Jesus comes on the scene 
It might surprise you if you've never done any research that four centuries passed between the last prophet, Malachi, writing his book and the coming of John the Baptist to inaugurate the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's a long time, isn't it? And during that time, scholars within Judaism, they got interested in doing genealogical studies. And what they had done was they created a book and it was an ongoing book. It was in process. It was done by several so-called scholars. And for about 60 or 70 years, beginning in 105 BC, they were writing down and embellishing on the genealogies particularly found in the book of Genesis. Perhaps you know that when Joseph was sold into slavery, found his way as a slave to Egypt, then he spent several years in prison. God was preparing a way to save the nation of Israel by sending Joseph there to be a prisoner. Joseph was clueless about why he was there. He was frustrated, and I would have been too. Abandoned, and I would have felt sorry for myself like he probably did from time to time. But finally, God miraculously delivered him from prison, and then he became the second in charge of Egypt, the most powerful nation in that region at that time. A famine came upon the land of Canaan, the promised land as we call it, where this man, Jacob, and his descendants were. But the Lord had to move in Jacob's heart and says, send your sons, some of them down there, and exchange things that you have that are valuable for grain. They did. Not all of them went. Some of them went. And finally, all 70 of them went. And what these men who were speculating did, they looked at the genealogy and they gave a name for all 70 of those people who came. We know the names of the sons, right, of Jacob, otherwise known as Israel. We know their names, but all their children were given names. And we don't even have any record of them. They just gave them names. They were fascinated with these myths and fables. And they talked a lot about them. It was intriguing. And the genealogies went along with them. There's an example that I would cite today about a religion, Mormonism. And I'm not here to slam Mormonism, but just to let you know, genealogies are really important to those who call themselves members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. And I read in preparation for the message that there are three billion names that are in their, I guess you'd say their system. And the purpose for this high interest is, there's a verse in the book of 1 Corinthians which says, Paul writes, it's kind of a cryptic verse, and he basically says, what I want you to do is be baptized for those who are your ancestors who have gone before you. And so that raises a big question. Why would they be baptized? Well, there's a, a way 
without being in any way disingenuous to look at that phrase, be baptized for. And the word for, I'm not trying to be too technical, but this is important. Just like in our language, sometimes prepositions or words have like two rather different meanings, correct? And the preposition that's used translated for there can equally well be translated because of. Be baptized because of. In other words, the influence that deceased ancestors, mothers, fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers, etc., because of the way that they shared the gospel with you and talked, you could be saved. But in the Mormon religion, there's a, a heart, and you can understand if you're falsely led why people would feel this way, that they can be baptized because they believe being baptized is a means of salvation. And I don't believe there's evidence in Scripture to substantiate that. I'm not going to go there with it. But we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Are we to be baptized if we know Christ? Absolutely. After we know Jesus, we've asked Him to forgive us of our sin, come to live in our lives. We want to publicly confess Him. We're not ashamed of him. Whoever's ashamed of me, he said, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of that person when he comes, namely Christ when he comes. So it's our privilege to declare publicly and unashamedly that we're followers of Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? I remember when I was baptized. It was a great day for me and it was a great day for my Parents, I'm sure we never discussed it. I don't ever, ever, ever having a conversation with them as I progressed through life, and they did too. But you see, there are groups, and I'm not, I singled out the Mormons because that was the one that came to my mind. And that was true even back then. And you can get sidetracked on interesting issues and be sincere because you're misled. That was going on in some way, form, or fashion, undoubtedly, at the church in Ephesus. And it was based on speculation. And it did not further the plan of God, which is by faith. What is the basis of our knowing the Lord? Well, it's the work of God, we know that, through the person of Jesus Christ, administered to us by the Holy Spirit of God. But it is a life by faith. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews 11, without faith it's impossible to please God. What is faith? Faith is forsaking your own effort to make yourself right with God and putting all of your commitment to Christ. Just saying, Lord, I can't save myself. Would you please do that? And he gladly obliges to the sincere one who comes and trusts that invitation and more importantly the inviter himself, Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. We read the Bible and remember we've already noted that Jesus says that the Old Testament is a testament to him. It's a speaking of him. If we can know Jesus even without having the New Testament, 
Thank God we have the New Testament. It's rather more clear there, isn't it? But we need to know that it's a, a life of faith. Now look at the goal of that which is solid faith, real faith, that which is the revelation of God. Look at verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is the cornerstone of the Christian life. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he goes on to elaborate on the primary commandment. He says, as I have loved you, you are to also love one another. This is the way we are to relate to God through a love like Christ. This word was in existence before Jesus showed up. However, when Christ came, He breathed deeper meaning into the word. It's the word which means the sacrifice of self and the service of undeserving others. In the second century A.D., about 150 years after Christ was crucified, a massive, awful illness began to sweep the Mediterranean basin. People were dropping like flies. This plague had no antidote to it. It was so horrible that families would abandon their sick relatives, their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, even their children to escape the fate that they knew was theirs in hopes that they had not been contaminated. There's a book that I read many years ago by a secular writer named Rodney Stark entitled The Rise of Christianity. The thing that caused him to want to know what the source of the rise of Christianity was when he looked at the data and he began to study the history of the church. He saw that this church was comprised primarily of people of no consequence as far as society was concerned. But as he began to investigate, he came across data having to do with the way the Christian people would not flee the centers of population in fear of losing their lives, but they would reach out. They became proactive in caring for members of their own kind, followers of Jesus, who were ill. But not only that, they even went to these abandoned, unbelieving people and ministered to them. And when he studied more carefully about that, now remember, he's not a follower of Christ. This is an intellectual of the first rank, not a follower of Jesus had no background in church at all. And he began to discover what happened was the reason what motivated those people was the love of God. The love of God motivated them. And they were willing to risk their lives for people who were perhaps even antagonistic toward them at times because there was no one else there. And they knew that if they didn't know the, Jesus Christ, they would be bound for eternal separation from him. They did that. Some of them lost their lives, but the reason they were able to, and this was kind of the clinching fact for 
Mr. Stark, when he thought about his relationship to God, is that they knew if they died, they knew where they were going. The Bible says this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And guess what happened to Rodney Stark, this world-class sociologist? He gave his life to Christ. Amazing. Based on the testimonies that were in the written record. Tertullian, who is a man of that era, 2nd century A.D., one of the early church fathers, this is what he wrote about the way others viewed people who followed Jesus. It is our care of the helpless, listen, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. Is there anything like that in our lives today? Do we love selflessly like this? We have the one indwelling us whose basic nature is love. He laid down his life for us in that while we were still in a state of sin, he died for us. Nobody twisted his arm. Jesus voluntarily did that. Leaving the luxury of heaven, the Bible says about Jesus Christ in the book of 2 Corinthians, though he was rich, he was the king of heaven, he adorned himself with human flesh and he came and he made a way that we could know. And we are to be people like that. And the gospel teaches this. It's not self-centered. It's Christ-centered, and consequently, it's other-centered. It's a whole different way of life. Look again at 5. The goal of our instruction, because it's built on the revelation of God, the Word of God and the person of Christ, who is God become man, the Word became flesh, is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's a mouthful. The Bible says in the Beatitudes, these are the words of Jesus, blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God pure of heart. Being men and women who aren't perfect, but men and women whose hearts have been purified by the presence of Christ in their lives, and they have the capacity, we have, who know Him, the capacity to let the life of God flow through us, and help us love even our enemies in situations. A good conscience. Have you ever lain awake at night with bad thoughts in your mind? Your conscience just was eating you alive? Well, when you know Christ, you do know when you are out of sorts with the Lord and you're not obeying Him, you're sinning. You know it. I know it. So what do we do with it? Exactly what God says. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to purify us from how much unrighteousness? All. In humility and sincerity, we confess it to the Lord. Boom. He's already done the work of making us right 
It's awesome in that regard. We sang some wonderful songs today, and they really fit well with this passage. And one of the stanzas from the hymn we sang last goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him. Who would him be? Jesus there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. That is not saying that we don't have any sin anymore. After we come to Christ, we still have the capacity to sin. But His presence by the Holy Spirit living in us, He, can, he, he really goads us and lets us know when we're not doing what He wants us to do. He wants us to do what? What I mentioned earlier, confess it, turn away from it, and then follow Him. Verse 6 says, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. False teachers speak nonsense. I mean, they are sharp. Look at this. Sharp. They are appealing. Look at verse 7. Wanting to be teachers of the law. Why would they want to be teachers of the law? Because they knew that the people in the church at Ephesus and elsewhere were people who responded to the teaching of Moses in the law. And they wanted to get people to look to them and focus on them. Go on in verse 7, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This is what I've noticed about false teachers. And they abound today just as sure as they, surely as they did in Paul and Timothy's life. They are cool operators. I mean, they are slick. They are ready. When they get up to talk, they look good, and there's nothing wrong with looking good. But they, they're so convincing. And people are there coming, perhaps, for feeding on the Word of God, and they don't hear much of that. It's about things that are really not substantiated in the Bible. And this is why we always want, as followers of Christ, to find teachers who teach based not on speculation. And let me just let you in on a little secret, and you may know this already. It's not a huge secret. When I do what I do, sometimes I get tempted to get a little cute, and I'm not talking about the advertisement. <laughs> but what I mean by cute, to get some newfangled angle on the gospel. Because I could have justified that, it's the gospel. And I see something there that really is not there in the long run. And people kind of wow, not over me, but over people they hear and they're teaching something they haven't heard before. And it could be, it's maybe because they haven't heard it here or elsewhere, but it could be they're teaching something that's newfangled because it's made up. And it's not rooted in revelation. It's just speculation. 
Well, let's go on to verse 8. But we know that the law is good. It is good. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, is the basis of what is known as the law of Moses if one uses it lawfully. In other words, teach it properly. That's what he's getting around to saying. Look at verse 9, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. And these six adjectives that we're going to look at here, beginning with lawless and rebellious, are general characterizations of people without Christ. Rebellious, and you might say to yourself, I'm not a rebel. Thank God you're not, but you can think you're not a rebel, and you are, because you do not know the full picture of what God wants for you. For the ungodly and sinners, let me just pause and give you the definition of sinners. The word which is translated sinners here comes from the verb in the language which was used to describe a bowman who was either hunting or target practicing or engaged in war. Took a bow, put the arrow in, pulled back tightly on the string, took aim and let go of the arrow. And the arrow missed the mark it was aimed for. Shot with integrity, of hoping to hit it and missed it. And that is what sin is. It's missing the mark. Now, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is the mark? God's glory. God's honor. God's being first in my life, in my heart. Not just talking about he, how He's first in my life. Not boasting about my achievement, but boasting in Him and His achievement. And that is when we sin. We know we've sinned. We're sinners. We have, this is a hard part for people, some people, to admit that they're sinners. But we are. And some kind of sins are pretty uneventful in people's lives as they see it or we see it. Let's go and look at the next part. Unholy and profane. Let those words explain themselves. For those who kill their fathers, uh-oh, fathers or mothers, for murderers. Now he's getting specific, isn't he? About the second table of the Ten Commandments. What is the Sixth Commandment? Let's back up to five. What is the Fifth Commandment? Honor your father and your mother. Now killing them is not honoring them, is it? Hardly. And then what is the next one? You shall not murder. The next one, you shall not commit adultery. What's the next one? You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And then finally, you shall not covet. And for a long time, I, I didn't even know what the word covet meant. And what covet means is wanting something that someone else has envying people. And so these characterizations here, these words that follow, people who murder, we know that's easy to see, and immoral people really, and this has to do with the breaking of the commandment to not commit adultery, and homosexuals, 
I'll come back and spend a little more time on that. And kidnappers, people who steal people. There was huge slave trade in the Roman Empire when Paul wrote this. It's estimated that there were at times as many, if not slightly more, slaves in the Roman Empire than there were free people. So how did they get to be slaves? Somebody had to go steal them and then bring them to market and sell them. And liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So there is the breaking of the commandments, the, what we call the Ten Commandments. And he's talked about in general, sin in general, earlier in this description, the first six adjectives he uses. And then here in the last four or five, he uses specifics. And I want to talk about homosexuality a minute. Homosexuality is sinful. And I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. God's intention for the expression of sexuality is seen in the fact that he created man and woman. It was not good for man to be alone. He created Eve, Adam and he, Adam and Eve rather, gave their themselves to each other and God's method and purpose of marriage is for companionship for humans with each other in the most intimate way, sexual relations within the marriage. That is for procreation, certainly. We're all evidence of that. But also it's for the pleasure that comes in that relationship. God wants that for us. But the practice of homosexuality is contrary to that. It's a sin. And it's listed in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11 with other kinds of sin. Let's take a look at this listing in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. We see reference, obviously, to people, and let me just be clear. This means people who practice homosexual activity. And some people have a tendency to be drawn more to their own gender than to the opposite gender. But the sin occurs when you step out of that tendency, that temptation, and practice it. The same would be true for a heterosexual who doesn't live his or her life out in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, but goes outside the context and has multiple sexual experiences. So remember, the sacredness of marriage is very important. But I love what the 11th verse says. If we were to stop right there, it could be rather gloomy. And it is a little sobering for me to even talk about it 
and for you to listen to what we've looked at. But this is the word of God. Now look at verse 11. And such were some of you. The church at Corinth had people who had, before they gave their lives to Christ, could be characterized by one or more of the descriptions which are mentioned. But you were washed. That would be washed by the work of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, his life he gave, cleans us up. But you were sanctified. That means we've looked at that, set apart for God's use. But you were justified, meaning you were made right with God, so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. He paid for our sin. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The story is told about a woman. She and her child were traveling transcontinentally across the plains of our country. And there was much desolation, not much life in between some of the stops. And she was going to a place she'd never been before, and she was nervous that she would miss her stop off. There was another man on the train who went that route with doing business all the time. He noticed her anxiety. He overheard her speaking to the conductor, expressing her concern about missing the stop. And he said, don't worry. I know where it is. And when the time comes, I'll come and tell you it's time to get off. And some of these were whistle stops. You know what a whistle stop is? There's not even any building there. So, as they progressed, a snowstorm began to come in that plains area. And the lady got more nervous. And then the train stopped. And this man who sat across, who the row from her, she, he had witnessed that and he said, Madam, this is the place. The conductor had not shown up and she was getting real antsy, wondering if it was the place. And he helped her with her bags, her child. They stood outside. He said, good luck to her. Got back on the train, left. About five miles down the road, the conductor came and he said, we're coming to the stop for this lady and her child. Where are they? And then the man told what had happened. And the train engineer began to back the train up. And that would be very slow, especially in a storm. Back up, back up. And by the time they got there, the mother and child had both frozen to death. Terrible. They were given false information, weren't they? Look, the Bible is full of only good information. It's the revelation of God. And God wants us to understand who He is through Jesus and what Christ has done for us so that God could be our Father and give us eternal life and give us a meaning outside of ourselves for living. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the way You teach us from Your Word. And we just ask, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to form us into the image of yourself, that we could be re your representatives in our workplaces, in our homes, in our 
everyday activities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.